Welcome back. In this episode, Betty prepares her first multi-copy, newsy circular letter to family and friends. As startling as it may be to younger listeners, photocopiers and printers didn't exist in 1946. If you wanted multiple copies of a letter or report, you had to insert multiple sheets of paper with a carbon-impregnated film placed between each of them into the typewriter. The top sheet was a crisp and clear original. The copies behind each carbon sheet became increasingly blurry and faint. A strong-handed typist who could smash the typewriter keys really hard might be able to stomp three or four copies deep before they started to become illegible. In this episode, we learn that Betty is settling into her new life in Nanchang, and she has lots of news and observations to share. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Embankment Building, 370 North Suchar Road, Shanghai, 2nd of May, 1946. Hello there, greetings from China. This is the first of those carbon letters that I promised to so many people. Some of you have probably read the family letters and therefore are up to date with the news. So I'll now tell you exactly where I am working in this fascinating country, the delightful quarters in which I am at present billeted, and a little about the diet and foods of the Chinese. Although I have given the Shanghai address above, and I want you all to write to me and address your letters there, I am actually out in the country, 700 miles from Shanghai, in the Shangji province, at the city of Nanchang. It is a big city, and you'll find it on the map quite easily. Unra has taken over a house right here on the waterfront, set in spacious grounds with lots of flowering cedar trees with big stone walls all around ensuring privacy, something which is hard to find in China. In six weeks' time, we should be taking over, in addition to this house, another very similar one which is contained within the same walls and grounds. At the present time, it is empty and undergoing alterations for us. The houses are of brick and are well built. It has been raining ever since I arrived here, but the house is watertight and you will realise as I write on that the rain hasn't really mattered a bit. The house is two-storied, with living quarters upstairs and the office downstairs. At present, there are five girls and six men on the staff and we have plenty of room. When the staff is increased to 15, we would be crowded and that is why the other house is being taken over. The upstairs is easily divisible into two, so the men have one self-contained half and we have the other self-contained half. There are wide verandas all around and the whole place, including the verandas, are thoroughly and finely screened. Marge Bloch and I share a big room and are very happy in it. We have beds, bureau and wardrobes, also a small bedside table and reading lamp for our own separate use. And all the furniture is lacking in blue, the blue that predominated in my little flat at Victoria Avenue. The walls are all cream, so it looks most attractive. Already, Marge and I have bought a pair of old Chinese scrolls and some cloths for extra decoration and are on the lookout for more. We might as well use them here while keeping them to take home. Downstairs, we have four large rooms as offices. 
a living room, the dining room and kitchen. Also, verandas downstairs. There's no power in the daytime, but the windows are so many and so large that we can all work happily by daylight. We are well equipped with linen and blankets, some amenity stores, beer and Coca-Cola and office stationery. So far, I can find nothing lacking. If you want anything at all, we call our Chinese carpenter and he makes to description exactly and immediately. On the house staff, we have a housekeeper, Mrs. Hugh, a charming person who speaks English fluently and does all our bartering with curio dealers when they call here with their wares. We also have a sweet little ama who does the housework, washing and ironing and always with a smile and a quiet little song. She sleeps right outside our room and is detailed to look after all the girls' wants. Three houseboys attend to the cooking, serving and heavier work. The cook is absolutely super and table service very posh. On the staff at this region, we have four Australians being Bill Duncan, the director, Keith Kestevan, the agricultural rehabilitation officer, Marge Bloch, the secretary, and myself, the reports officer. Then we have a Canadian, my next favourite. The Aussies are all and always first favourites up here. Sully, Sutherland, and the rest are Yanks namely Dr. Saunderson, Dr. Retta Adams, J.R. Marlowe, accountant, Marge Salfa, and Anne Zalo, welfare people, and Ted Thomas, allocations and supplies officer. The last mentioned is the only one that I do not like much. Today, another finance man is coming out from Ching Chang, where he's been marooned in that dirty pub for some days, waiting for the rain to stop. His name is Brewer, and I met him before I left Shanghai. Another usual member of the staff here is Ted Herman, the economic analyst man who works in conjunction with myself. At present, he is in Shanghai arranging for his Chinese wife to come up and live in the city. Altogether, the crew could not be improved upon. Several men go out every now and again on inspection parties, so we are rarely a full house. We have two jeeps and a rickshaw for transport, but are in easy walking distance of the centre of the city. It is strange how, out in the open country like this, the people still crowd together in the towns. In spite of the crowding, this town is nevertheless clean, with good wide streets and some drainage. We also have just acquired two bicycles to help with the transport problem. At our very front wall, we have a river, the River Can which flows with swift current into the Poyang Lo, means lake. Since the rain, the river has already risen 10 feet and is still rising, but this is apparently quite usual, as the walls are built very high. The soil erosion in China is terrific and tons of rich yellow soil are being carried out into the Yangtze River. The waters here are not clear at any time, and after the rain they are absolutely the colour of clay. In spite of this, we like our waterfront and are negotiating for a couple of motor launches and a sampan or two. On Sunday, we start our gardening. The place has been neglected for a long time, but is ideal for gardens. Keith has lots of seeds, and we all have lots of ideas. 
It is so nice to live and work in the same building. Some of the staff, most often the welfare people and the doctors, are downtown at the UNRWA Chinese Relief Office, but I will do all my written work here. And is there going to be plenty to do? We are all so enthusiastic here that I will be kept busy keeping up with all the reports they all make to me daily. Working hours are in our own discretion. Sometimes we start straight after breakfast at 7am and often keep going until dinner at night at 7pm with the recognised two hours off in the middle of the day. If we wish, we work or don't work at any hour of the day or night, which arrangement suits me beautifully. Bill keeps out of our way most of the time and only looks for work to be completed. The meals that we get here cannot be improved upon. Chinese cooks take the palm for cooking. We often have fish, which are an unbelievably large size. One fish steak, about the sixth part of a fish, serves the whole 11 of us with large servings. We have bamboo as our main vegetable, and I like it immensely, especially the young shoots. Other vegetables are peas, cabbage, bean sprouts, broad beans, onions. We always have eggs for breakfast with rice or oatmeal, plenty of sugar and tinned cream, tinned butter, homemade bread and rolls and buns out of local flour, tinned fruits and other imported rations, local beef, pork and poultry. This area is a particularly good food centre and in spite of the war which came right through the district, there is plenty to feed the local population though they have to work hard to get the surplus needed by the poorer, devastated areas. Our cook can also concoct some excellent desserts, which is unusual in China, where Chinese meals never include dessert, even to the extent of a very luscious lemon meringue pie. We miss the fresh fruit, of course, and will not eat salads or any uncooked food at all. Tea and coffee are always on tap and plenty of boiled water. What more could one ask for? I have grown to like the Chinese chow, and I'm quite at home with the chopsticks, believe it or not. You just have to be when it's all that's provided, as was the case on the river steamer. Every Chinese meal has a foundation of rice, a bowl being placed together with the chopsticks in front of each individual. A short-handled wooden or porcelain spoon with a tiny dish is also set for each person. In the centre of the table, incidentally, the tables always have to be circular for a Chinese meal, is a large bowl of soup containing all manner of unidentifiable delicacies. Each dishes out the soup onto the rice to act like gravy. I once detected cabbage, mushroom, duck's liver and spaghetti in the soup, and there are invariably some thin pastry dumplings floating around also. I like these. China makes lovely pastry. The above items are present at every meal. The other dishes vary. Usually there are four large plates of different types of food, all of which is thoroughly cut up before cooking in the kitchen and is therefore quite manageable with the chopsticks. Sweet and sour pork is a favourite dish. The pork, after being fried, is dipped in gluey gravy 
which in spots has a sweet flavour and in spots a sour one. I don't know how they do it, but the mixture is really good. Then they have an egg dish, which is like an omelette with prawns or shrimps or spaghetti or anything else mixed with it. They have raw chopped vegetables mixed up with some kind of dressing, but I have not, of course, eaten these. Other vegetables are mixed up together, but always taste only half cooked to a Westerner. Nevertheless, one acquires the taste after a while. A funny thing happened at the Chi Chang Bug House. As a special gesture to their unre guests, and incidentally, unlike in Shanghai, unre personnel are welcomed, toasted, and greeted in the provinces, the cooks at the hotel prepared what they considered to be a Western meal. We were given on large flat plates a buffalo steak, quite two pounds to each one, green peas, bamboo shoots, fish and lettuce all in together. Apart from the lettuce, which we ignored at the risk of offending the cook, it was a good meal. In the conventional bowl of Chinese soup, which they could not resist putting on the table, were floating, in deference to the foreigners, a number of poached eggs. But they had no European utensils, and you should have seen us all around the table, balancing two pounds of steak between light wooden chopsticks, pulling at it like so many hungry puppies. Peas are manageable, we are used to those, but the poached eggs were a different matter. If we were really good, we could pick one out of the soup without poking the sticks through the middle and thereby losing the yolk. That soup was a horrible yellow mess by the time we finished with it, but it was fun. Once on the steamer, the steward, with great pride and gusto, brought in a special fish dish. Guess what? Octopus. I, for one, couldn't face it. But Marge tried it and found it like leather. No good to me. I've seen too many of them. The markets are unbelievably dirty and unhygienic in Shanghai. Flies everywhere, no covers on anything, pork hanging in the dust and dirt on the open thoroughfare. I've not seen the markets here as yet, but I'm told that Every vendor is housed in a shop and that the thoroughfares are not used for food stalls. Eggs are very plentiful here, beautifully fresh and would be served with every meal if we wanted them. Incidentally, all the meals are fried or boiled, mainly fried, and for the frying they use vegetable peanut or sesame oil. It's not so fatty as our frying and really very tasty. Cooks are invariably men. I have tasted with careful direction, some of the Chinese wines and rice beer, and I find them mostly very pleasant but potent. One white clear wine knocks the best of drinkers under the table, I believe after one liquor glass. Women always have the right to refuse or only sip one drink at a dinner, if they choose, by saying each time they drink, Swa bi ang. It is a great breach of etiquette and causes loss of face if a man does not drink. The men regulate the drinking, and when any one of them feels so inclined, he says, Gambay! Whereupon each man who is still sober has to empty his glass. Fortunately, 
all the glasses are pretty small. And this usually goes on only until the best drinker is left sober. Personally, I think it's a terrible custom and rather revolting. But it has been a custom for years and it is a compliment to the guests to get them drunk. On our staff here, we have two pretty good drinkers who have easily outlived the Chinese parties so far, I'm told. Consequently, they have gained much face and are looked upon with profound respect. I've not yet been to such a party, but I believe there are lots of them. Tonight we are giving one at the house here, so I will have my first experience. I seem to have been rattling away at this old machine for hours, so I think it must be time to end the epistle, which I hope you have found interesting. In the midst of all these unusual and interesting things, I often think about each and every one of the folks at home and long for the mail, which I expect to receive from you all. Cheerio for now, from Sue Betty, Tai Tai. Suta Betty, Mrs. Postscript to letter, 2nd of May, 1946. My dear Jew, I hope you don't mind getting this first of the circular letters. Now that I've actually started the system, I think it might be a good idea. Five copies in one. Mother told me that you've been having quite a time with Walter. Good show. I think he's nice. When Mum wrote, you hadn't left for Melbourne, and goodness knows where you might be now. I'll have to send the letter home, as I know of no other address for you. I have done a little buying, and I am thirsty for more. I'm considering posting some things out, but I'm waiting for Dad to tell me about customs. Here in the province, embroidery, curios, mandarin coats, hundreds of years old, are quite cheap if you know how to barter. We most rely on Mrs. Hugh. Lots of love, Jerry old girl, and all my love to the family too. Bet. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune this episode, which reached number 42 in the charts in 1946, Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens by Louis Jordan. When he hollered, who's that? This is what he heard. Ain't nobody here but us chickens. Ain't nobody here at all. So quiet himself to stop that fuss. Ain't nobody here but us. We chickens try to sleep, and you bust in. And hobble, 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 hobble with your chin. Ain't nobody here but us chickens. Ain't nobody here at all. You're stomping around, shaking the ground, kicking up an awful fuss. Trying to sleep, and you bust in and hobble, 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 hobble. It's a sin. Tomorrow is a busy day. We got things to do, we got eggs to lay, we got ground to dig and worms to scratch. Takes a lot of setting, getting chicks to hatch. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself, stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here but us. Kindly point that gun the other way and hobble, hobble, hobble.
upset and getting chicks to hatch. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. So quiet yourself. Stop that fuss. There ain't nobody here. 